want to obviously see animal agriculture phased out. We want to help farmers transition to more sustainable forms of agriculture. We want to see the population adopt a plant-based diet because it's going to save so much money in um, yeah, healthcare. Healthcare. You know, I think of the number for um, heart disease, it's in Australia alone, it just it costs about $6 billion a year in direct health costs wow. for a disease that has been shown to be not just preventable, yeah. but reversible through yeah. a whole foods plant-based diet. Welcome to the Vegan Women Collective podcast. I'm your host, Rachel LaMarche, and the Vegan Women Collective has become my baby as I'm the sole remaining active founder. And so I guess that makes me the CEO or the director of this organization that aims to highlight and support the activism and entrepreneurship of vegan women through panels, workshops, and this hopefully interesting, inspiring, and informative podcast. The interview that you're about to hear is with the lead Senate candidate of the Animal Justice Party for South Australia, Louise Pfeiffer, whom I met with a few weeks ago before the federal election was announced, and so I was pretty excited with the timing of this one. I drove to Adelaide from Melbourne to talk with Louise about the Animal Justice Party's policies, her own journey into veganism and politics, and why she sees government as an effective way to put forward large-scale change. I also used our conversation as an opportunity to clarify the intricacies of the Australian political system. So if you're either an international listener and you'd like to understand Australian politics a bit more, or you're an Australian voter and you feel like maybe you need a refresher as to how the system works, then I think you might find this interview really useful. Uh, the Collective has two events coming up in Melbourne in June. The first one is part of the Specialist Workshop series, and it's a 3.5-hour workshop on vegan health and nutrition with vegan accredited practicing dietitian and accredited nutritionist Ebony McCorkle. Um, and that's on Saturday, June 1st. And the second event is a panel and networking session focusing specifically on branding and design, and that's taking place on the evening of Thursday, the 27th of June. Uh, the link to purchase tickets for those events are both on our Instagram, which is at Vegan Women Collective, or on our website, which is veganwomencollective.com. Finally, a quick reminder that we have launched a Patreon page if you want to support the podcast, which is patreon.com slash veganwomencollective, and where you can support us for as little as $5 a month, which would mean so much to me, because um, it's so much hard work, but I really love it. On that note, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with the South Australian lead Senate candidate for the Animal Justice Party, Louise Pfeiffer. Let's start the show. Welcome, Louise, to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. My first question is uh, basically if you could tell us a little bit about your journey into veganism. Yeah, well, it started back in 1995 when I actually became vegetarian. Um, so I studied arts at, at the University of Adelaide and I majored in psychology and minored in philosophy. And as part of the philosophy uh, course they offer, you could pick your own electives. I chose to do uh, as one of the subjects ethics and animal rights was um, one of the subjects within ethics. And I was... Um, really kind of shocked at what I learned about how much animals suffer, especially in the factory farming environment. And I learned there um, because it was, you know, described beautifully um, by Peter Singer, actually, because his textbook Animal Liberation was one of the prescribed readings. Um, up until that point, I'd, I'd kind of thought that I'd always felt an affinity with animals like most people, like we had backyard chickens, I could go and pick them up. And I was a bit confused when my parents were feeding me chicken and calling it chicken and not it's not chickens. And I... Um, and when I read um, about how much animals suffer um, through Peter Singer's book, I went, oh, it's, it's, just, it just, it's just wrong, like how much they suffer and when we have absolutely no need to eat them. Yeah. And they're suffering through their rearing and um, their violent death. I kind of thought, it was like this moment when I went, oh, that feels so right that, that to not eat meat, like to yeah. not eat animals. As part of this, like I did learn at that time about dairy cows and how they bellow for their young, for example, after their their calves are taken away from them. 
but it socially it was quite challenging to become vegetarian in in um, my family and my friends it was a big change to say hey I don't want to eat meat yeah, anymore socially it's a huge change yeah so this is back in 1995 and so I thought all right I'll, I'll be vegetarian I'll stop eating land animals that's that's I feel really strongly about this and I went on my way fast forward you know oh what was it so that was 1995, fast forward to 2010. So that was 15 years later. I was uh, pregnant, expecting my first child. I had my first child. I was still vegetarian. After becoming a mother myself, it really led to a shift in consciousness about a lot of things. It, it, it led to a shift in consciousness about what was I doing with my life professionally, all, all kinds of things. It just really led me to uh, that significant change of, of, of life events just led me to really question I guess be open to different points yeah. of view and things like that and when I was um, my son he was about six months old I think five or six months old and I was um, nursing him breastfeeding him watching television and uh, the 7 p.m project or the project as it's now called had a special on bobby calves and the story was actually about how animal activists were fighting to have these calves not starved leading up to their ultimate slaughter these male calves who are a, a by, an unwanted byproduct of the dairy industry and they were fighting to say look they need to you know at least not suffer in their days leading up to to death like yeah. you know, they need food they need water um and most of these calves are actually sorted at 10 days of age, but they're taken away from their mothers and ultimately suffering right up until, you know, that, that, that point of slaughter. And I learned that some 800,000 calves each and every year just in Australia alone are taken away from their mothers and slaughtered. And I was, you know, my, my blood went cold. I, I thought, I can't imagine if someone took my baby away from me I had nightmares about it for the days afterwards. After seeing this show, I thought, oh my gosh, like now that I had had my own baby, yeah. I really understood where milk came from. I felt the bond that mothers have with their own children and I felt sick and it was yeah, filling my dreams. And, and I had a dream, you know, someone took my own baby away from me and I couldn't find him despite searching. And I just felt this absolute empathy for these mother cows, yeah. which I just hadn't felt before. And I, I, I said, okay, well, what am I going to do? I'm like, oh, I need to go vegan. I don't want to partake in this industry which systematically violates you know the, the the mother cow you know repeatedly impregnates her takes her children away from her milks her yeah. um and I, I didn't want to take part in that I thought I, I couldn't find any justifiable reason I, I looked at biodynamic organic dairy farms but the same thing happened the only thing was that they were allowed to live with their children for a bit longer their calves and then they were taken away and slaughtered and yeah. so there was lots of potential band-aids but nothing Everywhere I looked, there was nowhere to justify consuming dairy anymore. So I looked into the egg industry at the same time and I just thought, I'm going to go vegan. I, I picked up that same book of Animal Liberation, actually, by Peter Singer that I had travelled with through my journey from university to share houses in Sydney to life in Melbourne and picked it up and read it again. And everything that I learned there about dairy cows, I read it again with fresh eyes and I just went, oh, gosh, like there's no justification for consuming dairy or eggs and so that's how I became vegan so yeah I mean that's I find it so incredible that in 1995 there was already like an animal ethics class and that the book already was available and that there was already kind of a, a justification being done around the ethics around meat and around slaughter and around mm. all of that so that's really interesting so you were studying psychology and all of that and then how did you get into because you're currently a financial advisor mm -hmm. so how did that kind of come about post what you were studying yes after an arts degree yeah um there's that old joke what did the uh, art student say to the engineering student would you like fries with that oh my god it's <laughs> quite funny that. it's quite funny um <laughs> i actually did get into do engineering and my sister is an engineer um but i did do arts because i wanted to do law but by the time i finished arts i'm like i sick of studying I want to yeah. go out into the big world so well in my final year of university I was doing contract work for Telstra um, it's just data entry kind of work and they said does anyone want to go to Sydney and do the same job and I thought oh just about to graduate from my degree why not you know I'd never been to Sydney before or I didn't know anyone but I thought if I hate it I can move back to Adelaide so I, I headed over there and I worked for Telstra for a while then um, was applying for other jobs because that was a contract role yeah. and 
um, there was a job ad with a bank, actually, that said they wanted graduates of university degrees for sales roles. And I thought, this sounds really interesting. And I applied. And they employed me and a you know, handful of other graduates to do home loan sales for a major bank. And it was great. I loved it. I learned all about home loans. I learned about um, yeah, mortgages. I, I was engaging with customers. I really liked that I was, people would call up, you know, to ask for an interest rate and I got to educate them about home loans at the same time. And I, I often got feedback from customers. I never understood that before. And now I understand how it works and what it's about and all those things. You know, we talked about borrowing capacities and lending value ratios and things that are, you know, kind of complicated concepts to yeah, the layperson. I don't even, I'm, I'm just like, well, I, this is a whole other interview where I could ask all yeah. these questions because <laughs> I have no idea about most of these things. Yeah, well, it is, um, it's, yeah, I mean, you learn about it when you need to, but it is that, that what I particularly enjoyed was being able to help people make decisions about home loans in this case. And it was a sales role as well. So I had like targets around, you know, selling mortgages. I could do it over the phone um, and, and things like that. So I really enjoyed that. And I thought, I like this industry. Where can I take it? So I uh, looked into doing graduate studies. I started off doing a graduate diploma in applied finance investment through through the Securities Institute of Australia. And I really enjoyed that too. So I was yeah, furthering my education in that space. But about halfway through that course, I bumped into a friend from Adelaide who I hadn't seen for a few years and she was working in Sydney as well and she was working in the financial advising industry and she told me more about that and she talked about how much she enjoyed it you know the contact with customers and things like that and I thought oh that that could be great for me too and so I changed so that graduate diploma turned into a graduate diploma of financial planning. During that time I went through a series of other roles I worked for a stockbroker I worked for an institutional funds management and stockbroking service provider I ended up getting a job with a fund manager after a couple of roles and and my clients ended up being financial advisors so I ended up being in business development. I was offered a role in Melbourne so I've been in Sydney for five years and this time I was offered a role in Melbourne. I moved down to beautiful leafy Albert Park uh, for a, a a new role and yeah ended up working in funds management and superannuation in that stage. So I wasn't advising clients individually anymore but I was working with financial advisors. I was traveling around and promoting the funds that I was representing. So the superannuation uh, products, the investment funds and the life insurance products. And I did that for you know quite a few years. Now that you're, you're, you're changing careers a little bit, you're going into politics. Basically, how did that change come about for you? How did you decide to go from this financial advising and financial planning business mm. to turning around and going, actually, you know what? I'm going to go into politics. Yeah. So the the time I had in Melbourne, while I was in that industry, the roles that I had were uh, more corporate roles. Whereas now that I've been in Adelaide for a few years, I've had my financial planning business as a small business owner for the last three years. But while I was in Melbourne in, in those um, corporate business roles, I also undertook a Master of Business, business Administration through Melbourne Business School. And I specialized in marketing um, subjects and did other things like, you know, negotiations, economics, um, organization. So a whole suite of, yeah, incredible subjects to learn about from a from a, a high level strategic perspective. So when I moved to Adelaide, I did start my financial planning business and was more in the small business space. And I thought this will be a nice family friendly role for me. And my clients used to be financial advisors and I thought this will be, you know, great. I'll have one-on-one interactions with clients and things like that. But my skills in some ways lend themselves to something bigger than that. So my, my roles in Melbourne were more, you know, strategy, relationship management, account management, you know, marketing, things like that, all of which you can apply in a small business context. But it still felt like that my full capabilities weren't being stretched in this environment and there's also a lot of things that didn't suit me about running a small business I really missed a lot about the corporate world and big business and all those kinds of things and it was it was only about it was only in 2017 late 2017 I was driving back from a camping trip with my husband and my two children and I was talking about you know what was the good that I could do in this world like my husband and I had already talked about this we are both um, members of the effective altruism community, which I'm not sure if you've heard of that. No, I haven't. Yeah, so the effective altruism community was started up in Oxford in England um, a number of years ago by some 
Oxford graduates who are going, you know, we want to do good in this world. We want to have social impact and how can we use evidence and reason to help make decisions about where to focus our attention. So it's worth looking up the, the Centre for Effective Altruism online and seeing the lots of branches under there. Um, there's something, there's one called the Global Priorities Project, which is what should we be focused on globally? Like That's what are so our existential risks and things like that? There's another subgroup called 80,000 Hours, which is if you've got 80,000 hours from the time you graduate to when you retire, how can you best spend those to have the greatest social impact and which are the roles where you could have that? Now, up until the point when we moved back to Adelaide, so from about the same time as when I became vegan, my husband and I decided to work out how we could have a good impact. And at the time we were like, well, we can give our surplus money or make a decision to donate money to the most effective charities globally. So we embarked on, there's a path called earning to give. So you deliberately choose a higher paying um, income, uh, sorry, a job, so that you can give more to charities that are doing the most good with the world's poor. And the difference between some of these charities when they're they're ranked and assessed in a way that you would assess a a stock if you're going to invest in it and things like that is quite comprehensive. And the difference between like a, a good charity and one that has got less evidence to support that it's doing good is can be hundreds and hundreds of fold difference. So for every dollar you spend giving to a charity, there are some that you can absolutely say are going to do a thousand times more good than another. That's great. Yeah, because of my background in investing and constructing portfolios and understanding the necessity of research to, you know, provide evidence to say, well, you know, if you invest in this way, this is going to give you the best return. Similarly, um, why charity should be also looked at as an investment. Yeah. If I want to invest to get the best social return, have the best, uh, the most impact on the greatest number of people, um, shouldn't we be um, referring to that research um, to make our investment slash, you know, donation decisions? Yeah. So we use research by an organisation called GiveWell.org to direct our um, annual giving. And we started off at 5% of our gross household income, moved it up to 10%. And we gave to organisations that uh, were highly rated, such as um, Oxfam, the Against Malaria Foundation, which distributes insecticide-treated bed nets to people where malaria is a problem. There's another um, charity called Give Directly, where you can actually directly give to people in poor countries, and the money goes through. I think it's it's like almost straight through. I think there's a little clip off for the technology that supports this, but it actually goes directly to a person living in extreme poverty. And they've 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 done studies and they've shown that uh, the people that get these you know gifts from uh, donors that they use things to you know to fix their roofs to send their children to school to you know make changes that are yeah. going to benefit them and their whole community. So yeah. there's a lot of evidence to say you know if you give to give directly they will on gift it and it is going to do good in the hands of the person who needs it most and they make really good decisions about how to spend that money. Yeah. So. That's, so that's kind of what we were doing. So we, we'd made a decision we want to have a good social impact yeah. um, back in 2011. And we're going, let's earn money and just, you know, give it away to the best causes that we can yeah. find each and every year. But at the uh, driving back from this camping trip, I'm feeling frustrated. I'm going, uh, I went to my first band live export rally back in 2011 in Melbourne on this discussion with my husband at the time that their, you know, live export hadn't been banned. It still yeah. hasn't been banned. It's going, why, why isn't it being banned? Like 80% of Australians are against this trade. Like, why isn't it, you know, why isn't that banned? And also there's no action being taken on climate change. Animal agriculture contributes more to global warming than the coal industry. And yet no one is talking about this, not even the Greens, the party that has set itself up to say, hey, let's, you know, talk about environmental yeah. issues and let's start taking care of our, our our home, this planet. And it was this frustration that led me to go, you know what, maybe I'm not meant to be running my own financial planning business. There's a couple of other reasons that were making me um, personal reasons that I was kind of going, maybe it's not a good fit for me in other ways. And so we started talking about politics. And interestingly, on the 80,000 Hours website, so they've actually got a section, you know, one way you can do good is by getting into party politics. And the reason why you can do good there is because governments control a huge amount of money. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can get into a position where you can influence policy decisions then you can influence them to... Um, how they spend that money. How they spend that money yeah. and to, so to have that money spent in a way that's going to do good or address some of these really big problems that, that we are facing yeah. as, a, as a species or even as a community. And I said to Phil, I'm not sure about politics. Like I, you know, I, I was less than apathetic about politics. Like he's always <laughs> been into politics and he's like always tried to get me interested. I'm just like, no, 
don't care. We need individual change. And that's where it's at. That's what I'd said to him on the day we first, you know, when we first started dating, I'm going, you know, people need to change, right? And he's like, no, governments and, and institutions need to change. And I'm like, no, people. Anyway, this went on for up for 15 years. We didn't actually resolve that until this moment. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it, actually, because um, governments have this ability to create wholesale change. They yeah. can, through changing legislation, impact so many, so many lives of either people or animals in yeah. one fell swoop. It can be there is nothing that can make change happen faster. We need grassroots activism. I absolutely think that that is such an important part of what we're doing, but we need top-down change at the same time. Yeah. And it was that realisation, I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe maybe that's a space I could look into. Maybe I've got skills that would be better suited in that space. The 80,000 Hours website says, look, it could be, because one thing they're big on is if you're going to choose a career to have social impact is it should be a good personal fit. And some of the things they mention is, you know, you want to be good at, yeah, things like, you know, negotiating relationships, understanding, you know, some complex problems and working out how to solve them. Um, but in particular, like you need to have skills to help negotiate with other s- stakeholders or other politicians or whatever it might be. There was also a line in there that said, um, you know, must be able to withstand media scrutiny as well and I thought really hard about that one because you know I've got a young family I'm like oh it's you know do I really want to be in the spotlight is this really for me and I I wasn't sure but I thought I'm gonna look into it anyway and I as it so happened the weekend after we got back from this camping trip was the vegan festival here in Adelaide which is amazing it's two days in the center of town it's just incredible Um, you know 18,000 people over two days it's this really mainstream incredible event And there were two political parties with stalls there. So the Greens had a stall and the Animal Justice Party also had a stall. So I went up to the Greens and, you know, I had a chat to them about, you know, what are your policies on animal agriculture and the environment and plant-based eating? And they said, oh, we don't talk, we don't have a policy on that. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, it's so weird. Yeah, it is. Um, I, the more I think about it, I, I mean, this this was a little while ago. So the more I think about it, I, I, I really do think it's because the Greens have got a number of people elected around the country. Not a huge amount, but they're still kind of like the next big party after yeah. Labor and Liberal. And now they've got too much invested in the status quo. Right? Now they're like trying to get re-elected. They're, they're, they, they think that talking about this will be a vote loser. And you know what? They actually might be true. But it still needs to be talked about. Like this is a huge problem facing our current generation and future generations is climate change and global warming and factory farming and antibiotic resistance. These issues are huge. So I went to the next um, stall at the Animal Justice Party and spoke to them. And as it happened, the state convener was there and he is, you know, one of the policy formulators. He's all across all of their policies. And I said, tell me about, you know, animal agriculture. He goes, absolutely. Like we accept all the climate science on this. We want to obviously see animal agriculture phased out. Over time, we want to help farmers transition to more sustainable forms of agriculture. We want to see the population adopt a plant-based diet because it's going to save so much money in health. Um, yeah, healthcare. Healthcare. You know, I think the number for um, heart disease, it's in Australia alone, it just it costs about $6 billion a year in direct health costs wow. for a disease that has been shown to be not just preventable, yeah. but reversible through yeah. a whole foods plant-based diet. So I thought, look, I could try and get into um, one of the major parties or the Greens and try and influence their policy decisions around these topics that I care so strongly about that I actually thought, you know what, maybe I just go with a party that has got values that align with my own and aren't a a party who isn't afraid to speak the truth about some of these issues that might not be vote winners, but it's still you know, a battle I don't have to fight to go in and say, okay, let's try and get this across the line until voters get to a point where they're ready for a a policy on animal agriculture, you know? So Mm -hmm. it just felt like, I don't know, if if I'm going to go into a party, I want to go into one that already has got the policies that I agree with 100%, not one where it's, I need to change them. I need to get in there and change the policies because really I want to get in there and uh, we need to be bringing this stuff to the fore now. There actually isn't much time to wait on this. So I said, look, can I help? Um, how can I help? Yeah, yeah, how can I help? So I said, so I joined up and I said, how can I help? And, you know, I was invited to go to the monthly members meetings. 
And I said, look, can I, I've got some, you know, skills here. I've got some marketing skills and, and other things. Can I help with the state election that was coming up in a few months? And they said, yeah, sure, absolutely. So I helped them almost straight away. I was able to help with their digital uh, marketing campaign. They had some ads ready to go. So I helped them with the placement of those ads on, on um, digital platforms such as Facebook and Instagram. And it was really exciting for me, actually, because I, I had done and loved so many marketing subjects as part of my master's yeah. that this was great to be putting this into practice for a cause that I felt so strongly about, which was in this case was, you know, getting more votes and getting more people to know that the Animal Justice Party existed. So it was around brand awareness. It was around, you know, positioning, you know, what we had to offer to help influence voters to vote for us. So I think I mentioned earlier my background. I have quite a, a lot of my um, history is in at sales and business development. So for me, like getting people to vote for us is, you know, it, it's just another form it's of a sale. sale. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm like, great. So I'm getting to use all the skills that I have in for a cause that I'm so passionate about in this way. So it was really exciting being part of the election team. And I got asked to run actually in a, in a lower house seat here for the state election, which was held in March 2018. I was a bit hesitant at first. I was thinking about that media scrutiny and I'm going, oh, I'm not sure if this is what I want. Like I know I want to be with the party and helping the party. So I had to have a think about it and, and you know, just think, you know, what are people going to think of me? You know, the community, if they see me in the paper or whatever might, you know, things like that, which, you know, in hindsight, it was just a process I had to go through because right now looking back, I'm like, I'm standing up for something that I believe in. It's, you know, it's something which, you know, there's so many bad things happening to animals, which is impacting our environment and health that, you know, I should be not afraid to speak the truth yeah. and, you know, to be you know, proud of what I'm, what I'm doing, but I had to go through this, you know, cause I don't, didn't at that point in time, particularly want to be in the public eye. So the seat that I was chosen to run in was Carvel, which is the next electorate over from where I live okay. in the Adelaide Hills. So I thought I might not get too many people noticing that I'm doing this again, you know, I was a bit shy, uh, which I think is understandable when you're venturing into these things, but particularly around politics, because, you know, politics is just something that people are either really into or they just they don't know about so they're a bit you know apprehensive about politicians yeah. it's kind of strange calling myself a politician you know at that point in time and yeah so Australians don't have um, a high regard for a lot of politicians even if they're standing up for something that they believe in there's still this you know and no kind of a, a funny yeah, relationship yeah kind of but also you know it would be in addition to this whole idea of basically maybe just not understanding or not really wanting to get involved into politics. But the Animal Justice Party could be considered by people that are, you know, are the complete opposite of us and not interested in animal liberation or animal rights to be kind of an extremist mm, party. Mm. So I can understand how in addition to being just like, well, the scrutiny to be just like, well, the party that I'm choosing is a party that could be considered extremist mm. by some. Mm. And so that's fine by me. But how about my kids and my family? Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that a lot of people would have had to go through that process to decide, like, mm. I'm still going to do that because that's what sits right with me. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I imagine that Sarah Hanson Young would have felt the same way when she was running for the Greens back then, when it was still a growing party. And yeah, she would have had the potentially gone through the same thought process herself. But as it turned out, I ran in Carvel and I, <laughs> even though I wasn't, I was kind of thinking I would fly under the radar a bit. As it turned out, the seat I ran in, there were lots of media opportunities. They invited all the candidates running in the Adelaide Hills seats to write for the local paper that was published every week. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I had got to write, you know, I think it was like 200 or 400 words every week for the six weeks leading up to the election. Um, alongside all the other candidates who were running with a photo of me. So there, so I wasn't really flying under the radar. There's another newspaper that I got asked to write for Up in the Hills, which had wider circulation. People definitely saw that and, and asked me about it. Um, and I got invited to candidate forums and to be on the radio as well, Up in the Hills. So it was kind of the opposite of not. Yeah, of a, of a low. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah of just, a... I'll just ease into this and see how <laughs> it goes. So, But interestingly, those people that did either read my articles or notice there were the feedback was positive I was surprised actually after the election that you know I had people I wouldn't expect to say oh I voted for you 
like you know like my son's swimming teacher and oh that's fun yeah and other yeah other people like that and going oh that's really nice because you know these because one of the messages that we were marketing on is everyone loves animals no one loves cruelty to animals so we did have a really mainstream message that we were delivering and that resonated with a lot of people because we ended up for our statewide vote for the upper house we tripled our vote from the previous state election wow yeah there was a a number of reasons why that happened you know really hard working team really hard working uh, lead candidate uh, for the senate and uh, digital marketing as well like we really we spent almost all of our money that we had for marketing on digital marketing because interestingly, the when I joined the party, they're like, oh, we really want to focus on Facebook marketing because this marketing professor wrote this article about how much it helped one of the political parties in the UK because you can be really targeted, you can do it quite stealthily because your competitors, the other political parties, yeah. won't see your ads because if you're not targeting to them, they're not actually going to see them because you can target it to, you know... Uh, uh, people that like f- specific pages of a certain age group absolutely their particular interests particular ages particular postcodes you can be really targeted so the party presented this you know this research to me and as it turned out it had been written by one of my professors from Melbourne Business School who I had you know, had been one of his students for a subject so that again it just felt really good to me because I'm like oh I really am going to get to apply all of my you know business school training in in for this election campaign and I did so apart from running as a candidate I was you know placing all these ads I was incredibly busy with um, candidate forums and writing articles and all kinds of things but I felt absolutely that all of my skills were being used to their full advantage yeah to their full advantage and it was just such a good feeling like I had felt you know only six months earlier I'd felt so helpless about all the things I care about, the plight of animals, the environment, all of those things. And I didn't feel helpless anymore. I really felt like I'd found my purpose and my calling. So it was such an exciting time. And our results were fantastic. Like we, for all the lower house seats we ran in, uh, we only ran in four lower house seats for the state election. But we outpolled the Australian Conservatives, which we all took great pride in. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> We were That's a fourth- huge achievement. <laughs> it, thank yes, thank you. Um, and we were the we're the fourth party, so Labor, Liberal, no fifth party, because we've got a party here called um, it was the SA Best, which was run by Nick Xenophon, who's like a very popular candidate. So there was Labor, Liberal, the Nick Xenophon team, or the SA Best team, as they were called, and the Greens, and then us. So we're like the fifth big player or growing player in this space um, after those election results, which was great. Fantastic. We did so well in the upper house because we got over 2% across the state. So, you know, two out of every, over two out of every 100 people put a one for the Animal Justice Party for the upper house, which is so encouraging. And it also means when you hit that 2%, you get money back from the Electoral Commission. Like they actually refund the money that you paid on marketing and things like that, which meant as a party that has built our coffers for the federal election, which is coming up in May. I have to say, and that's really going to educate my next question, because I'm not Australian, ultimately, I don't necessarily have a huge understanding of how your systems work. So when you talk about the lower house, the upper house, the federal and state elections, can you just give a bit of an overview as to how, I mean, I'm sure it's full of intricacies, but like as to how elections work in regards to the federal and state and the upper and lower house Mm. and also because you're the lead senate candidate now Mm. for the animal justice party can you also explain what that actually means in Mm -hmm. regards to australian politics yeah so each state has their own parliament so their own government so here in south australia and it's similar across the other states we have um, a premier who's essentially the leader of the government in this state he is his his name is Stephen Marshall here. Um, the premier of the state is the leader of the party who got the most, who has the most seats in the lower house. So in the lower house here in South Australia, I don't recall. I think we've got. Um, I think there's something like forty lower house seats in the state parliament. Um, there's forty electorates, so it's kind of you know on a map like it's drawn up, and the people that live in those different electorates. Uh, vote for someone to represent them in parliament and whichever party ends up with the most then they their leader will become the premier yeah 
Yeah. So here in in South Australia, um, the Liberal um, the Liberal Party got the most candidates in the lower house at the state election. So they elected their premier or their, their leader is Stephen Marshall. Now there's also an upper house here in South Australia, and there are I think there's about twenty senators. I might need to check that. And state so there's certain laws and laws that fall to the state government, which they can. Um, they have control over certain things. So if you take a state issue here in South Australia called duck duck shooting, so that's a big issue that we've been campaigning on. We want to see it banned. We want this you know, sport, which results in so much cruelty, completely banned. For duck shooting to be banned, the legislation needs to change. There needs to be something changed. Assuming there was agreement to change it, it needs to be passed by the members of both the lower house and the upper house. So when we go to the polls last last year in the state government, we get to elect our local member to you know to represent us in the lower house, and then the upper house we elect on a statewide basis, and that is made up of an, you know another group of people. But the idea being that you've got a house that holds the other accountable, and vice versa. So legislation just doesn't get passed by you know the group of people sitting in the lower house; it gets written and then passed to the upper house to pass, and vice versa. The Senate, the people that are sitting in the upper house, the elected. MPs there, they can also propose legislation and then that needs to go down to the lower house to get passed. So there's always like, a, it's kind of like a checks and balances kind of system. And that's very similar to what happens at a federal level. So in South Australia for the federal election, we have 10 lower house electorates out of about 150. So we only get 10 seats in the lower house that represent us in Canberra, which is where federal parliament is located. So we have 10, but like if you take a state, a state like Sydney, which has got a much greater population, they, they get like 50 odd or, or something like that, whatever's proportional to their um, population, um, to make up 150 seats in the lower house. Here in South Australia, we've got six Senate seats coming up for re-election. So the way the Senate works is that, unless it's a double dissolution election, you've got six Senate seats that become available every three years. Yep. But what's interesting about that is that South Australia gets the same number of senators as New South Wales. So it's not representative of population. No, it's not. The lower house is, but the upper house isn't. I don't know the history behind why that is. What that means is that Tasmania also gets, you know, 12 senators representing them in the upper house. And it means that we've certainly seen over the past, you know, decade or two that for the upper house at least – People can elect, you know, for, from states like Tasmania and SA in particular, we've seen green senators elected from both states. You don't see that from, you know, some of the other, the larger states, because even though you need the same percentage to get elected, it's still a smaller voting population that you need to reach out to and talk to about your policies and things like that. And whoever gets government from the lower house, they get to elect their leader as the prime minister of yeah. Australia rather than the premier of the state. Yes. That's the same kind of mechanism. So what does it mean for the Animal Justice Party that you are the lead Senate candidate here in South Australia? So the each political party gets to um, choose who is going to lead their Senate ticket is the terminology that's used, which means that when, on voting day, voters will see the party name above the line And below the line, um, there will be the candidates in order of preference, in a sense. So people don't people can kind of choose if they vote above or below. But if the Animal Justice Party gets enough votes, then whoever is listed as the number one candidate below the line is the person that will get elected into the Senate. And the same goes for the other parties. So the Liberal Party will have, you know, candidates listed underneath the line in order of which they will be elected, depending on how many seats they win. Okay. There's a six. Senate seat that is up for grabs here in South Australia. And there are a few competitors. There's the um, the Australian Conservatives. There is um, the Clive Palmer Party. There's Pauline Hanson's One Nation. So there are others that will be vying for that seat. Uh, and we will be trying our very best to get our message out there to the voters that, you know, a vote for us is a vote for kindness. And don't we want to see, you know, live export ban and other things like that. And Unless we, as a party, unless we've actually got people that are elected on the sole premise of trying to advocate for animal issues, then these issues get kind of pushed down the priority list. And even when 80% of Australians say we don't want live export, we think it's a horrible trade and we don't want this happening in our country, unless there are people that are 
got the power to change the legislation uh, unless we are in there influencing people in on the steps of Parliament House and in the corridors in trying to get this across the line, then it just gets overlooked. Um, and even though it's, there's so many people advocating for it, lobby groups, all of these things, the only way we can guarantee to get legislation change in favour of the animals is to become, a, you know, to get into politics as a movement ourselves, hence, you know, the formation of the Animal Justice Party and hence why I'm running. Yeah. For voters here in Australia, you said there's probably six seats available in each state, so independently of which state they're voting in, there should be a representative from the Animal Justice Party. How well, they should go vote one Animal Justice Party, and then is it a preferential system? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. So above the line, at least, voters have to number six boxes. So the Animal Justice Party first, and then the next preference, second, third, fourth, fifth and sixth. And that's something that voters need to understand is that they can control their preferences for the federal election. There's no way that their, their vote can go to a party they don't want it to. So people um, you know, often ask us, you know, who are you preferencing and things like that? And yeah, absolutely, we talk to parties to try and negotiate better outcomes for animals through you know, suggesting that people can put a certain party second, third or fourth after the Animal Justice Party. But it's absolutely up to the voter themselves to decide where that goes. But the reason we do put out that information is because we have worked out what is going to, to lead to a better outcome for animals by preferencing one party ahead of another. And so if voters comply with what we're suggesting, then that's going to help us deliver on the things that we're trying to make happen, you know, with parties. Because even if we don't get elected, if the second party that we've got on our list, if our vote helps them either by retaining the seat or, or um, swinging the seat away from who's currently sitting there, then that sends a signal that, you know, we can also swing seats. So it's important for voters to understand they've got absolute control over who they preference. But the reason we've put preferences in place is because there are things happening that we can also make happen if we're not elected. Yeah. They will know where the votes came from. Is that there will be like an accounting done of where your votes came from in order to elect Absolutely. You. So yeah. uh, obviously all, everyone pays attention to where the first preference vote goes. And, you know, if, we're, if our first preference vote count keeps increasing that is excellent because it means that it's showing that we are a growing party which we are and it means that the other parties have to pay attention to us which they are um, but also when a voter's preference goes somewhere else and that is also really looks so let's just say someone votes one for us and two for labor it's in a seat that labor's trying to win and they just get across the line because we didn't win that lower house seat, but Labor did, then the Labor Party will go, oh, so we actually got elected because of Animal Justice Party preferences, like because people voted one for them and two for us. And if it wasn't for the Animal Justice Party voters putting yeah. us second, we wouldn't have won that seat. And that's really powerful for um, subsequent elections. That's really interesting. And so in a, in a perfect world, it works out and you get into the Senate. How does it work in regards to policymaking? What are the, the policies that the Animal Justice Party can bring at a federal level? Uh, live export is probably one of our key policies that we have that does fall under federal legislation. You know, the first and the biggest, because at the moment, like we've got Labor has promised to ban live sheep export in the middle of summer to the Middle East. That's so specific. It is extremely specific and we want to see it a ban for all animals all seasons to any country. So that would be one of the uh, things that I would, you know, the party would really like to see changed at a federal level. Um, we have other policies as well, but that's probably the key one that we would be, we're going to be campaigning on and if elected would be trying to do everything within our power to influence, you know, in, within a very, you know, as short a time as possible while in power. That's so interesting. It's so and so. How did you find yourself being the lead Senate candidate? So the I put my hand up for it. Um, so with I worked really hard for the party for the state election. I did some really challenging things. Like I actually went to a candidate forum, which was for a cattle farming lobby group. So I had to get up in front of a hundred cattle farmers at a community forum in farming land and tell them why I thought they should vote for the Animal Justice Party. <laughs> Can you please tell me how that went? Yes. Well, um, it was, 
I was really scared and nervous. I uh, would be <laughs> terrified. It's like, you know, it's just, it's almost like going naked in front of an audience. Like, it's, uh-huh. yeah. Uh, so one of the things, um, yeah, I was extremely nervous, but I also thought, you know, if I can do this, I can do anything. anything. <laughs> So um, I thought, well, I've got to know my audience. And I knew, you know, me getting up and saying it mean as murder was not going to be a message that would be, you know, uh, received very well. So I framed, you know, I told, it was, I only had a short time to talk. So I spoke a bit about my background, you know. I said, you know, my, my grandfather worked at the abattoir. My great uncle was a sheep farmer. You know, I was born in, you know, Murray Bridge, um, which is a, you know, country town with a big farming community. And, you know, worked my way towards, you know, the Animal Justice Party and took a line that they weren't expecting, which was I focused on how the industry is changing. Consumer demand is changing for products like dairy milk and people are becoming more and more aware of the environmental harms that animal agriculture is doing, particularly beef. And people are also seeing on social media all the horrors of factory farming and this stuff is shared in ways that were unforeseeable back in 1995 when I was reading a book. Like people are learning about this stuff and it's and they're sharing it and they're going, oh my gosh, did you know this was going on? So there's a, a lot of change happening in um, consumer behavior around this. And there's also a lot of money going into trying to save um, the planet and also into the industries that are forming as a result of, of this, um, you know, the climate change and changing consumer tastes. So I spoke about how Bill Gates and... Richard Branson and Elon Musk's brother and Tyson Foods, the second biggest meat manufacturer on the planet, are all investing into lab-grown meat, which is now known as clean meat. Yeah. And they're also investing into, you know, plant-based meat analogues, which are made from plants. So there's, you've got your lab-grown your meat, your cellular agriculture, uh, which there's tons of money going into this. Um, and then there's also products on the shelves at the moment, like the Beyond Burger, which is sitting on the shelf. And I said, you need to know that this change is happening. And the animal, and these products are going to be sitting alongside what you're selling with it before you know it. And the Animal Justice Party is the only party talking about this. And we want to work with you as farmers to help you transition and get ready for this change. Because when these products are alongside yours and they don't come with the environmental cost, they don't have cholesterol, they're the same price, which one do you think people are going to choose? And they don't come with the ethical issues of animal you know, rearing and slaughter. Which, which do you think people are going to choose? And we want to make sure that you as farmers can yes, keep... families. And, yeah, yeah, we want to make sure that you as farmers, you can keep putting food on the table for Australians and you can keep the family farm for generations to come. So that was how I phrased my talk to uh, in that particular forum. <laughs> and how and did you feel like the, with that angle that they were potentially more receptive or Yeah, most most were. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The um, organizer of that particular event at the end, you know, he was nodding, you know, and I think he was nodding because he was very interested in what I was saying, but also because he was really glad I didn't go meet his murder. Um, but it was, you know, well received. I'm learning so much just by doing this podcast, but this whole idea of like kindness and appro- approaching people from a new angle, that's something that's completely new for me. I've been quite, you know, like I do me and everything that others do is wrong. And, you know, I'm not particularly proud of that. Like I'm not particularly proud of the line that I was taking. It's being kind of hammered down to me about how taking that approach an approach that's logical and kind to others and that really showcases how that change can affect them positively from an mm. economical place mm. from a you know from a personal perspective is probably really the message that's going to get people mm. more and more people over the line mm. as you were saying what you did or the approach that you take I, was, I thought that well that's a fantastic strategy and that makes a lot of sense and it's probably why they were so connected to what what Mm. you were saying if after listening to this interview some people feel a call to action and they want to get involved and they want to affect change at that kind of level at the government level how would you suggest people what what would be the first few steps or even just the first step that someone could take Mm. to get involved 
Mm. Well, there are many, uh, there's many ways and there's also many tiers of government as well. Um, but with the Animal Justice Party, for example, if someone was interested in learning more about what we're doing, uh, because, yeah, we absolutely run in elections, but in between elections, we're campaigning on issues and lobbying you know, going and meeting with our uh, the MPs and saying, hey, you know, what about this? Um, and how can we get this change happening? So there's lots of things that can be done any time of year, you know. And uh, so getting involved at that le- level would be, you know, becoming a member of a political party, coming to meetings, saying, can I help? Can I lead a campaign? I really want to see this happen. And, you know, can you help point me in the right direction on, you know, what how we can make political change happen. Um, That's from a lobbying and advocacy perspective. But we have, um, there is a need for getting Animal Justice Party representation in local councils. Like the local council elections were run a few months ago. There's a a great opportunity. There are some electorates in the council space which aren't hotly contested at all. And some, you know, and this is actually a strategy that the Greens have used. They they find these electorates where it's relatively easy to, to be one of the 10 councillors and get elected, provide, you know, the candidate with some resources, and next thing you know, you're a councillor, and then you can actually make council changes in the local council around things. So there's a council in, um, I think, California. They've now got, you know, it's, it's only a small win, but it's still a win. They've got, you know, meat-free Mondays now. So at the council office, you can't have meat in there. And that was born off the back of, uh, you know, a vegan advocate, you know, being elected and yeah. in saying let's do this there's really good reasons why we should do this uh, so that's councils and state elections you know come up as well and and federal elections so it's about contacting a party I think the animal justice party definitely resonates with me the most and working out how you can best use your skills to advocate for the animals in any of the tiers of governments where it's lobbying your federal MP or your state MP or your councillor or getting elected yourself if you've got the, you know, the desire and temperament to do that. And that was Louise Pfeiffer, lead Senate candidate for the Animal Justice Party in South Australia. I hope that you feel empowered by your voting rights. It's always important to remember how it really wasn't that long ago that women were given the right to vote, let alone represent a political party. I also hope that you now feel like you understand the Australian political system better. Um, The upcoming federal elections are being held on Saturday, the 18th of May, and I myself am not allowed to vote yet, but I think it's so important uh, and a right and duty that means so much, especially with the current state of our planet. Again, don't be shy. If you think that the podcast has value and that you would like to support my work, uh, you can find our Patreon page at patreon.com slash veganwomencollective. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe to our show, rate us, leave us a comment if you're listening with iTunes, and as always, tell all of your vegan friends. For any comments or suggestions, including potential guests, both in Australia and abroad, please feel free to email us at hello at veganwomencollective.com. The Vegan Women Collective podcast is recorded, mixed and produced by myself, Rachel LaMarche. I thank you again for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Cheers! Cheers!